Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. It's Friday, June 17th, 2016. This week is episode 418. We're going to flash back to December 9th, 2011, and an interview we did with Dr. Gene Cox Ganser of NIOSH. And before we do, we want to stop and thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Dr. Gene Cox-Ganser is a research team leader for the Field Studies Branch Division of Respiratory Studies at NIOSH. For the past 11 years, she has been a principal investigator for research studies on respiratory health effects of dampness and mold in office buildings and schools, and is the author or co-author on over 20 peer-reviewed publications, book chapters, and reports resulting from research. From 2002 to 2005, she was a team leader at the NIOSH Research Agenda Indoor Environment Team, and in 2009-2010, she was a member of the International Scientific Committee for ASHRAE's Indoor Air Quality 2010 Conference, Airborne Infection Control, Ventilation, IAQ, and Energy. Uh, Dr. Cox Gassner was also recently, let's see, one of the keynotes at the 6th International Scientific Conference on Bioaerosols, Fungi, Bacteria, and Mycotoxins in the Indoor and Outdoor Environments and Human Health in Saratoga Springs this past fall in Saratoga Springs, New York. We welcome her, and I think we have some introductory music. I've not seen you started on the heavy stuff The things that you're inflicting with every puff Like acute bronchitis, influenza, pneumonia That virus, pulmonary syndrome, mesothelioma <laughs> That's an interesting one. All right, Dr. Cox-Ganser, do we have you on the line? Yes. Hi, Joe. I'm here. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate having you on. While we have a chance, interview you and and get your thoughts a little bit about uh, things in the new new and new things in the indoor air quality world. I know that you're with the NIOSH Division of Respiratory Disease Studies. Can you tell us a little bit about that division? Um. The NIOSH Division of Respiratory Disease Studies is in Morgantown, West Virginia. It's one of the it's one of the uh, situations where NIOSH is, and we have in our division about eighty people, and um, 
as, as our name says, you know, we focus on occupational respiratory diseases. Uh, we have uh, a surveillance branch, and we have the branch that I work in, which is called field studies branch. Okay. What, how do you determine what types of things to study? We have a number of mechanisms because um, we're the federal government, as you know. There's uh, one way that um, workers, unions, or employers can uh, request help from us through a health hazard evaluation program, um, and that's one way that we get a lot of indoor air quality, certainly, uh, requests. In terms of our NIOSH research program, we have a number of uh, um, research councils based on sectors. So, for instance, the service sector is the sector that would cover the kind of work that we do in the indoor air. And these councils are composed of intramural and extramural stakeholders, and they come up with uh, research agendas for both uh, internal and external uh, work for occupational health in the various sectors. And so those are a couple of the ways in which we, which we try and coordinate our, our research studies. Now, one of the ways you mentioned is that I, I guess people call with concerns and then NIOSH responds and, and sends out someone to investigate. I've seen some of these reports. Are they, can you give us an idea of you know, what the most common complaints are? Yes, and, and what you're talking about is our, what was called our Health Hazard Evaluation Program. Uh, and there's a site on the NIOSH website where, you know, these forms are that people can request. And for uh, many years now, at least half of the requests that come in are in relation to indoor environmental quality complaints. So um, we've done some counting up, and uh, we see commonly uh, dampness and mold, asthma, and uh, other lower respiratory health problems uh, are are the things that drive people to come to us. What what led to your interest, your personal interest in, in the respiratory effects of dampness and mold in you know office buildings, schools, etc.? We, uh, I think, uh, I'd like to say that our branch chief, who's uh, Dr. Kathleen Christ has worked for many years in this field. And before she came to Naya, she was with National Jewish out in Denver, Colorado. And she uh, and some of her patients had come to uh, uh, understand that there were these health problems related to dampness and mold. When she came to work with us at NIOSH, um, she put forward uh, the idea that we should start a program in uh, particularly asthma in related in relation to these problems and so we competed for funding intramural funding and for almost a decade now we've had um, intramural funding to do this research you know Jean it's readily apparent that you're passionate about respiratory disease was there a pivotal moment in your life when you decided that this was the field of study or specialization for you? I think, um, in general, I my training is in biology, immunology, and um, and animal science. And 
when I got the opportunity to come and work here at NIOSH, which is almost 18 years ago now, in, the, in this division, um, that's when I became focused on, on uh, respiratory disease. But just in general, my grandfather in South Africa, he was a, a, a printer and a typesetter, and he, um, he contracted lead, uh, disease from the lead exposure and, and died from that. So I have sort of like a personal interest in occupational health because of that. Okay, um, what is respiratory morbidity? <laughs> I think that's a word that uh, I think in uh, ordinary terms one might just say illness and the um, outcomes of illness. So it doesn't include death. So people, physicians will often talk about morbidity effects in contrast to mortality effects. So it, it, it's really just the effects of illness on people. Of the wide variety of chemicals, particulate, biological, that you have studied, which have surprised you as being more hazardous and or less hazardous than you previously thought? Um, it's sort of a little bit of a difficult question, and uh, it might sound a, a sort of strange answer, but I, my approach to these things is to keep like an open mind. So when, when, when we hear of uh, possible hazards, which, whichever way we do it and when we start to research them, I really like to let the data tell me the story. And so I, I don't really get surprised one way or the other in, in that regard. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, um, I suppose people could say, am I surprised that dampness or, or, or mold when people, you know, in our work, sometimes people will say to me, mold is ubiquitous, how everyone's exposed to mold. How can that cause all these health effects? But, you know, I'm not surprised that it can because I've seen seen the results of our research. And, and so it, it doesn't surprise me. Okay. Well, going a little into more into mold, and I've, I've read some of your research. It's fascinating. And, and the paper I was looking at where you had a building that was remediated from water damage issues and mold, I think in like 2002. And NIOSH had done some sampling, and you wrote a research paper on this along with a few other people. And I was curious about your choice of sampling methodologies. You used dust sampling. Can you explain for listeners why you used the dust sampling to kind of get a background idea on what the mold levels were in that building? Yeah. And and I'll say here that the um, we work as a team. So the environmental scientist that I've worked with for over a decade now in this area is Dr. Zhu Young Park. He is responsible for, you know, the sampling more than I am. But I will say this, that from our reading and our research, we've seen how variable air samples for mold can be, the results of it. And unless one has a lot of money and many, many samples, we feel it's very difficult to get a, a reasonably accurate picture of, of mold exposure via air samples. And we have done it in the past. 
But what we have moved towards doing is trying to use settled dust in, in carpets. Sometimes you've used chairs, but we've mostly done floors um, in that we feel that it might be almost like an aggregate or capture a more historical picture of what has been in the air. And that's why we move towards using um, the uh, fungi and bacteria in, in dust samples. And can you tell listeners what type of analysis you do on the dust samples that you take? And, and as I understand it, I think there were about 300 dust samples taken. And now this is a 20-story building, I believe, so you, know, you had to get a, um, a representative sample but I understand there were about 300 samples. And how did you analyze these samples? I think we've, uh, over the years on that building, we've taken many hundreds of samples. But um, since our research project was to try and understand um, the relationships between respiratory health outcomes and exposures to, say, microbial contaminants with mostly mold, mostly fungal contaminants, we have, and we were also interested in trying to understand whether biomarkers of fungal exposure might be um, more useful in, in doing these dose-response relationships than, than culture methods. So when we analyze the dust samples, we do both culture, so that we you know, send, the, send the dust off and, and grow, grow fungi, uh, and the lab gives us the speciation, and we also have done uh, a marker of fungal exposure called agosterol, which is in the cell walls uh, of the fungi. And we've also done a, another marker, which is called uh, beta-D-glucan. In terms of bacteria, we'll do culturable, and uh, we have also shown, been interested in endotoxin, which is uh, in the cell walls of gram-negative bacteria. Now, endotoxin in itself uh, has, a, has a wide literature and is known to cause inflammation and, and symptoms in the body. And I think it can also modulate the immune system. So those are the types of things we have analyzed for. And can you tell listeners a little bit about the results that you got in this particular building? I understand there was some pretty significant moisture problems as I saw it. There was a roof leak and there was apparently leaks in the building envelope. And then um, they did a remediation there apparently in, you know, around 2002, 2003. And as I understand it, the levels seemed to go down after that remediation, but then they appeared to go back. Can you verify right. if I'm accurate there or not and what your thoughts yes, were? That, yes, that that is accurate. And these Certainly, there was no um, lack of good intentions on the part of the building owners. They spent a lot of money um, um, trying repairing this building. It had um, multiple uh, leaks through roofs and through windows, um, through sliding doors on the upper floors with balconies, which when we first became involved, the balconies had been designed so that the water was leading into the building rather than away from the building. Um, there have been problems with uh, with rain being driven in through the brick facades in that building. So there have been a number of problems. 
And over the years, they've really put a lot of effort into remediating it. But because of the nature of the building design, it, it, it's had to be ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. And so we feel that there was never a time when the remedi- we could say there had been a complete repair. And so... Um, the major effort, as you say, sort of ended in late 2003, early 2004, when with uh, a lot of repair on the on the windows and the roof. And as you saw the in the paper, the uh, levels of fungi in the dust went down a little bit, and the proportion of hydrophilic, which is the water-loving fungi, went down. But then in our last survey, which is in 2007, we found again that the hydrophilic fungi had proportionately, uh, you know, increased again, and that the levels of fungi and endotoxin and agostral had had risen again. And could you tell um, listeners what types of respiratory complaints they the occupants of the building had, and a little bit about whether you think uh, those complaints were being caused by or at least associated with the dampness and the the mold in the building? Sure. So um, this is a building that we first heard of through a request for for help through the Health Hazard Evaluation Program, as I said to you earlier. And so when when it was, when our help was requested, there had been a history of um, complaints of um, work-related asthma, Hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which I think was mentioned in your song, <laughs> and um, there was a, a small cluster of sarcoidosis, and many many work-related uh, upper and lower respiratory complaints, and, and including skin rashes. So that's the scenario when when we came in, um, and um, in our first cross-sectional study, which we have a paper on in 2005, we had um, we did uh, a medical survey which included questionnaire and medical testing. So we did lung function testing in the group of, of um, participants and found relationships between case definitions based on their questionnaires and their and their lung function, their sick leave, and their uh, in fact quality of life. So we really felt that we had uh, shown these that there would, certainly was something going on in 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 these in this building occupants. And after the remediation, they did remediate, and and for some reason the number seven point five million dollars sticks out in my mind here. There's, there was significant, like you said, repairs done to this building, right? But they couldn't get everything fixed. And just to give some of our listeners that are more familiar with building science issues a a little more insight into it, the apparently the building envelope, I think it was a brick brick exterior or or stone exterior, and there wasn't a good drainage plane behind it, so significant issue to try and, and fix. And I don't know, if is the building still in use, do you know? Yes, it's still in use. Okay. And, and I have to say, if you if you drove past it or went into it, it seems a rather nice building. It certainly is not derelict in, 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 any, in any way. 
and after the initial remediation, the, the levels did seem to go down, but they came back up. It seemed fairly quickly within a couple of years. I know when you went back in 2007, were, were the numbers pretty much the same as in 2002 by that point in time, or was it not quite to that point? Oh, no, they were higher than 2002. So would it be... And go ahead. They were a bit higher. And, you know, in 2000, this is one of the uh, things in our work. When we get called in for, for HHEs, we often are um, not the first, people that are called in. So when we came in, there had been some work done on the building um, and carp- some carpet replacements and, and things like that. And we'd, seen, we'd seen some consultant reports which had shown higher levels of fungi in the, and bacteria in the dust than we found in 2002. So we don't think 2002 was the necessarily the highest level to start with. I'm curious, did you do any uh, PCR polymerase chain reaction type testing in that building? Um, no, we did not. Uh, is, At that stage, we didn't have uh, we didn't have that in our research plan. I, I, we certainly are interested in that. And uh, more recently, we have been doing some work with colleagues in our uh, another division here on our campus, which is called the Health Effects Laboratory Division. And they have a group there which has expertise in that regard. So we're trying to develop uh, to be able to use those methods in future studies. And how has that gone so far? Are you just to, are you to the point where you can make any kind of comments on it? On PCR? Yes. Well, not necessarily from our work, but certainly uh, I think it's, just from you know going to scientific meetings and reading the literature, I think it's going to be very very useful. And um, again, it's it's going away from culture, where the the problem with culture, as I'm sure you guys know, uh, is that it depends on on the media that you use, and you get interference between the species. and And I think I have seen estimates that as low as like sort of like 10 to 20 percent of of the of the species may actually be found by culture so um it's not necessarily the best research tool put it that way and and that's why i asked because you know we have a lot of listeners that do field surveys they try and assist people with indoor air quality problems dampness issues and i'm wondering if if you can give them a tip, I mean, I know I have to go look at a building next week. Um, it sounds somewhat similar to a smaller building, but, you know, we've got uh, certain tools at our disposal. We have a certain amount of money that our clients have to use. We want to put that money to the best use. Can you give us some tips on, from your experience, what the best use of that money would be when it comes to doing the investigation? I think I would start by saying I would first look at the objectives of the investigation. So so when people come to us, and this happens in our health hazard evaluation program a lot because we, we see that people can spend a lot of money, and, and we get a lot of requests from schools, for instance. And schools don't have a lot of money, and they will sometimes spend a lot of money on air sampling. And 
not really see much that would help them. So how we are, what we're advising people when we speak to them through the health hazard evaluation is, if possible, do not necessarily use air sampling because uh, if for research, I, I'm not knocking air sampling uh, in total, but I mean in a practical sense. So we tend to have, try and move people away from that. Um, if it's just a matter of trying to say, does our building have dampness and mold and are there health effects, the, what we suggest to people is that they will use, that they use uh, you know, questionnaires, ask, ask, the, ask the occupants, try and get a survey of the occupants uh, in two ways. That shows you whether they could be, you know, increased prevalence of certain things over and above the numbers for the state or numbers for the U.S. Also, you can see clusters, perhaps, in different parts of the building. And then the other thing that we really, really uh, advise people to do and I think the EPA does as well, and the AIHA, is to do really good walk-through assessments, observational assessments. So looking for signs of dampness, smells for mold. Uh, for us, that's a sign of hidden mold. Um, signs of um, mold growth. And only for any, if you really have an objective to find out species or genera growing there, would we suggest that you do sampling and then perhaps use PCR? And um, so that's how we have been telling people. I don't know how you feel about that, How, how you, what you usually do, Joe. Well, that that sounds um, almost identical to what I would do. I mean, I but I, I also noticed there's been a big trend toward the dust sampling in general, and then I was curious because when you analyzed the dust, you did the the culturable for for the fungal contamination, but also you did um, the orgestral and the gastro, right. and then the endotoxin. And obviously, we can't always afford to do all three. So if I had to to choose at this point in time, I would assume I would lean toward doing the fungal. But I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are. I think I would lean towards doing the fungal. From, I'm presuming that you, your representative or consultant is asked to come in and see if the building has has contamination. Yes. Uh, r rather than to do uh, research linking health with the contamination. Right? Yes, exactly, exactly. Right. And, and I agree with your whole. I, I appreciate the way you laid it out with respect to doing some, some questioning of, of the occupants of the building and then doing the walkthrough and, and doing some simple diagnostics, I would add, with some moisture meters and some temperature, uh, you know, laser thermometer, and if, if you yes, have it, uh, infrared, et cetera. But, yeah, and then if there's indications and we have a hypothesis that we're trying to prove, I'm just trying to figure out what the best use of the money beyond that would be, and it seems like uh, doing some dust sampling and then possibly analyzing that for uh, fungal growth and using culturable uh, analysis would be the way to go at this point. Cultural, you know, often what we'll do for culturable then is, and, and I think you've seen in, the, in some of our papers, that we've seen um, 
exposure response relationships with total fungal counts in the dust, um, as well as with the hydrophilic. But total fun fungal counts have consistently shown relationships with work-related lower and upper respiratory symptoms. And I, and I know, and I'll say right now, that there are, we do not understand any cutoff points yet as to what could be considered, you know, safe levels. Because people, um, people uh, both building owners and managers and, you know, occupants are always asking us that. What, what is a safe level? And, and I really, I, I hate to say it to everybody all the time, but I have to keep saying we don't know. And it's not only NIOSH. I think you will know, Joe, I don't think there's anybody in the world can, that can state some safe level. And it's, uh, I would imagine, and and I want to ask you this, I have to take a break here and thank our our sponsors, but when we come back, I'd like to get your thoughts on whether there are safe levels that would vary by individual, or whether there may be some safe level for people in general, and then maybe you could tell us a little bit about, with respect to that specific building, what happened as I understand it, some people who were having major problems actually left, and, and therefore you probably don't have much data on those people. Would that be accurate? Yes, that's accurate. Okay. Well, Dr. Cox-Ganser, we appreciate you staying with us for the first half and putting up with a little echo. And for those of you out there on the uh, listening in, we're, we're working on that, but it seems like it's coming along okay, and the recording will be excellent. We're going to stop, take our halftime, and thank our sponsors. And thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com and, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IEQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. 
Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview with Dr. Gene Cox Ganser from the NIOSH Institute down in uh, Morgantown, West Virginia. Do we have you back on the line? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, great. And I, you know, I thought about it while we were listening to the commercials. I didn't want to put, um, when I said we were, you know, going through the process the way you described it with respect to doing some interview and then doing our, our walkthrough and some simple diagnostics, I had said, and I want to make sure I'm correct, I, I had said that I would go to maybe culturable sampling of the dust, but I think you were leaning more towards PCR, and I didn't want to put words into your mouth, so I wanted to make sure I gave you an opportunity to address that. Would I maybe be better off using PCR in that situation? Although, let's talk about the price difference. You know, a culturable sample right. for dust is maybe, what, uh, less than 50 bucks, and a PCR is about 300 but it seems like you get a little more, a lot more information from PCR, but I'd rather you address that. Well, I think there's some information to be had from both types. So uh, why I don't want to just say that culturable is, is totally not useful, that's why I mentioned to you that in our, uh, in, in, our, in our work over the last decade or so, we have seen consistent relationships between... Um, work-related health uh, outcomes, particularly symptoms, and culturable total fungi counts. Um, so we have found dose response curves. So I don't, even with all its limitations, uh, I think it 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 still has its its usefulness. And as you say, it's it's a lot less expensive. Uh, we have not used. Um, um, you know, uh, Dr. Steve Vesper's uh, uh, approach, uh, the ERMI, uh, in, in, in our research work yet. But, uh, you know, I think it's a very, very interesting idea. And I, you know, from what I know, PCR um, tends not to give you, uh, unless you go to the quantitative PCR, which I think is even more expensive, it doesn't, it doesn't give you as much an idea of quantity, but it gives you a good idea of, of what species are there. Okay, uh, great. Now, the other thing I promised we would address, and I, I know we have to move on. Cliff has some other things he wants to get to, <laughs> but uh, I hate to dominate things, but I love having you on. Anyway, we, we talked a little bit about the, the people in the building, and I was wondering if you could comment on the the issue of people who seem to have more sensitivity or more problems in these damp buildings leaving the building sooner than others and therefore you have this issue where you know the people who are having less problems stay longer and i'm wondering what your thoughts are on that issue in general right i think we see that kind of effect in other occupational studies too and we we tend to call it like it's almost like a healthy survivor effect so that the prevalence uh, or uh, the prevalence studies that one does may be biased by the fact that some of the early affected workers are, have left already. But um, what we saw in, in this building, even, you know, we saw relationships even though some of the early sentinel cases might have left the building already. So there was sort of un ongoing uh, incidents of of asthma and uh, and symptoms in this particular building, um, and um, I think one of the things we found in a in in a paper we published recently is we is we looked at uh, 
it was a fairly small subset, but in a subset of people that we could follow medically over the full surveys, we didn't see we didn't see strong evidence that that they had improved very much. The only the only evidence we saw is that an, uh, the people that had been relocated within the building um, and the things that were going on, you know, people in office buildings, it often happens that the, the management will try and move move them to another place to see if that helps their symptoms. They showed some signs of of improvement. And we do know that um, from occupational health clinic that we were doing some work with that people who had left the building had shown signs of improvement. Are you familiar with any other remediations or, you know, either that you were involved with or NIOSH was involved with or through your, you know, research in, in the, on the issue where there was a successful remediation and people returned to the building without continuing health problems? Yes, there's one um, where we saw some um, evidence that the remediation had worked. We had had a, this was a health hazard evaluation at a school um, maybe a couple of years ago now where um, it was in the Carolinas and uh, the school had a lot, had had a number of years of, of history of water, water incursions and um, we, together with the consultants which who had been hired by the school district, had um, did walkthroughs and found and and sort of laid out some of the issues that were going on. And the the occupants of the building were relocated while the remediation was then done. They did every recommendation that we and the consultants made. And then at the start of the next semester, people came back into the school, and we went back and did a did a health questionnaire sort of asking um, if if their symptoms had improved or if they'd come back since um, being in the school again and and the results of that seemed to indicate that that, that the remediation had worked pretty well right. uh, it, we haven't written that up as a as a research paper but that is a health hazard evaluation report Okay. And um, I know of some. This is an. I just want to state this because this is an area I think where there are still research needs because it is. It's actually pretty difficult to get access and do this kind of research because you have to have access to the populations where they have the m enough funds to do the remediation, and it's as you see it's longitudinal, so you have to do it some years. And so there's quite a lack in the literature of, of, of work of this sort. There's some work out of uh, the Scandinavian countries in Europe uh, which has indicated that remediation to schools uh, ha can be successful and uh, lead to decrease in symptoms. But it's not, it's not always so clear. And one of the things that we've seen in the literature and there, uh, is that... Um, People with the more severe symptoms or people with asthma or had asthma related to the building, sometimes they do not improve or certainly do not improve immediately. So there's still questions regarding this, unfortunately. That's excellent. I mean, I, that's what we need, to, we need to work on, and that's why IAQ Radio likes to bring people like yourselves, like yourself, into communication and discussion with 
those listeners of ours and ourselves who are out there in the field doing this type of work, and uh, we just have to work together and continue to do so until we help to answer some of these questions. Let me uh, let me turn it over to Cliff now for just a moment because I know he wanted to ask a couple questions about some other respiratory types of issues you've studied over the years, and uh, then I've got a couple other I'd like to add with respect to the people who are actually cleaning these issues up. Sure. Well, Gene, I think oftentimes Joe and I tend to focus on water damage and the effect of water damage on indoor air quality, and I think sometimes we focus too much there. Um, I've heard of other hazards that are causing health effects, and I'm just wondering whether you could comment on some of these other uh, industrial hazards such as dust and cutting fluid, um, you know, agricultural processing byproducts, and even flavoring and flavoring popcorn production. Right. I, I, of course, it's occupational um, health is is a very very wide issue, uh, NIOSH wide. So I certainly don't have the expertise to speak to to all of those things. But some of the uh, uh, some of the studies that our uh, division has been involved in, I have also done work on, and so I can I can certainly speak to. Uh, I've done some work with cutting fluids and microbial contamination of cutting fluids, and of course, one of the big things that our that our division and our branches worked on over the years is this um, um, bronchiolitis obliterans, very severe lung lung disease in relation to exposure to uh, uh, artificial butter flavors. And um, so, for cutting fluids, um, what we what we've seen over the years and what we've been involved with is some some studies relating to outbreaks of Hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which is um, it's an it's it's an immune response, but it's not an, uh, the same type of allergic response as asthma. And what happens in the lungs is that it, um, it you can get fibrosis of the lungs, and um, it can be quite a severe quite a severe problem. And what we've seen is that, and other literature has shown that it looks like. Um, unusual contamination of the of the metal working fluids or cutting fluids, especially the uh, water based or semi water based ones, uh, with um, fungi and perhaps a type of um, non tuberculosis uh, uh, bacteria called Mycobacterium um, has been related to to these to this to these outbreaks, but it's. It's still not totally known, but um, certainly cutting fluids and their contamination is is, is a big problem. And we've done work, and others have done work in auto, the auto industry and other in other machining shops in that regard. Mm-hmm. As far as the the flavorings, that's um, that's been in relation to these artificial butter flavorings, um, and the one chemical that has you know hit the news in this is is, a, is something called diacetyl, and now that diacetyl, the companies are starting to use it less, but they're using substitutes for diacetyl, which in themselves may may also have similar health effects. It's still still under study, but um, that's um, been. There's going to be 
probably rulemaking on exposure to diacetyl. It's it's very different than than fungi and mold. Fungi, where I don't think there'll be rulemaking, you know, for many many years, if ever. But uh, with diacetyl, there has been enough information to try and do to do risk assessment on it. Thank you. And then there's one other uh, uh, something we've done that may be of interest to you is um, we had a health hazard evaluation on um, on a, a soy um, cake manufacturing plant. It, it made soy products um, for I think sometimes for animal food, but perhaps for for human food, and they were asthma like um, asthma like uh, health outcomes in that in that workforce. And we did we did a study in them and found relationships between uh, asthma symptoms and work-related asthma symptoms and the, um, the uh, levels of, of uh, IgE in, in, in the blood. So, and that's of interest because although it's very well known that you can have food allergies to soy, as I'm sure you know, everybody's well aware of, um, is that it, it points out that inhalation uh, at certainly in an occupational setting, can also lead to, to asthma-like outcomes. Uh, I'm curious, have we, before we uh, went to Cliff's question, I, I had mentioned that I'm curious about any research or any experience you have with respect to people who go in and clean up water-damaged buildings or especially, I know Cliff's interest is in people who do disaster restoration work on a daily basis, either cleaning up water-damaged buildings or cleaning up after fires, which are also oftentimes water-damaged buildings because of the attempts to put the fire out. Are you familiar with any information or research on the potential health issues that these people face? You know, Joe, I have not really, and maybe you know more than I do about this, but I do not really know of much in the literature about that. And I think it's, again, a, 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 something that would be fantastic to study. I think it's, um, it's, sort of, it's sort of difficult. I think some of the remediation companies, they tend to be perhaps small. And, you know, to get, a, to get the population, to get a, a design going, it may not be that easy. But I... I, I don't know if there are unions involved, but certainly I think from an epi, epi point of view, uh, it would be very, very interesting to uh, to see what's going on in, the, in that group of people. And, yeah. you know, to put in again, you know, what, what does respiratory protection do? Does it, how does it help them? Things like that would be of great interest to the field, don't you think? Absolutely. it's It's sorely lacking. I haven't found anything other than the New York City guidelines at one point when they changed from just covering stachybotrys back in 94, they changed it in 2000. And one of the bullet points said that, you know, because they were changing it to cover all types of, of mold because people performing the widespread cleanup of mold contamination and water damage were at a higher risk for hypersensitivity pneumonitis or uh, ODTS, organic dust toxic syndrome, but I don't know where that, I still haven't been able to figure out why they had that statement in the change, although it's something that I'm going to continue to uh, research and, and maybe someday down the road we can you know, talk a little bit more about that. 
think that would be interesting. It really would. So what I'd like to do is we're, we're running a little uh, late. Uh, are you, do you have to run right now? You can stay for 10 no, minutes? No, I have a few minutes. I really appreciate that. We'd like to bring our technical director on if he's still on the line, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Uh, he's a neighbor of ours here in Pittsburgh, and by the way, many people probably don't know, you're right down the road in Morgantown, so we're not too far <laughs> away from each other, and I uh, look forward to talking to you again, but let's bring uh, Dieter on. Hello, Dieter, any comments or questions for Dr. Yeah, Cox I hear Beethoven again that may have Woken up that poor man. <laughs> <laughs> Dieter, how, is, does it sound better now? Or are you getting a little better? Sound? Oh, yeah. Before, I mean, it was annoying. Okay, okay. Uh, you broke up left and right. Right now, I have no problem at all. All right, I think we figured and, out what the uh, problem is. Do we have is. another uh, hour then with my comments? I'm, I'm just <laughs> praying that I can bring her back, to be honest with you. Go for it, Dieter. Uh, yeah, I, uh, uh, just a couple of highlights. And there were a couple of things I really liked that were mentioned. And that is that dose response. That the dose response concept is known for a, thousand, for a thousand years. You knew when you ate too much of this and this, you would die or you have, or you throw up. Yeah. But it has been put into writing by Ted Hatch from the University of Pittsburgh in, in my department. And for, I mean, I met the person. And uh, I listened to a couple of lectures of him. I would have liked to meet him a lot earlier than I did. But Ted Hatch finally put it into writing. I happen to have uh, the original papers. They were 1950-ish and so on. And, of course, it makes a lot of sense if you look at it today. That's, that's the one thing. If you find something that is very interesting, you all of a sudden find... Wow, why didn't somebody else write that one down? It makes so much sense. I didn't, that's for sure. But the dose response of anything is still, for my way of thinking, the gold standard. If you can't have, if you can't establish a dose response curve, which on semi-log paper turns out to be a straight line, you have virtually nothing. And if somebody has a question to that, I can go deeper into that. And the other thing is um, uh, with uh, uh, sampling. And I'm a fan. My, I spent my whole professional life uh, uh, looking at particles in the air. And I'm, I'm somewhat biased, and I'm well aware that you know, something that's in the vacuum cleaner is, is of importance, too. But I like to take air samples because that's what you are inhaling. I don't care about coal dust in the coal mine on the floor. I am interested of what the coal miner is inhaling. The other thing is, and we mentioned that one, the endotoxins, and I worked with a gentleman from NIOSH. I think it was on cotton dust, and it may have been on isocyanate. He has an MD behind his name. Great guy. He worked for NIOSH, and that is 25, 30-ish years, years ago. Anyway, these endotoxins are incredibly interesting, and I published papers on that years ago. And the other thing, I just read that the other uh, day, uh, that the lipopolysaccharides, that is, quote, in the negative 
cell wall, uh, uh, in the cell wall of negative bacteria, they found um, endotoxin-like substances in um, uh, 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 bacteria um, uh, negative, uh, uh, positive. So anyway, but I have the air sampling, and that is fine. Another point, and I ran into that. In fact, I run into that in my house or when I go to a friend's house, that um, you kind of get accustomed to something, and there is a good word for it. It's called anurement. Anurement means um, getting accustomed to a smell or an, an, an insult on the human body that you first notice, and then all of a sudden it goes away. Well, you got accustomed to it. That is uh, the involuntary getting accustomed to a nasty thing. A another thing that was uh, also mentioned, we got to watch out with these substitutes. We say, oh, this is bad, and this is bad, but there is another substitute. And I give one example, and believe me, I'm not the one who will say that lead is good for you. <laughs> On the contrary, I know that. But I said, we've got to get rid of these lead additives in gasoline. But we have a new one. Well, I said, where is the toxicology? Where is the dose-response curve of that? What does it do? Oh, it's better than lead, therefore we use it. You've got to watch out with that. And the other thing I wrote down here, the risk assessment, of course, a good risk assessment is based on the dose response. And uh, 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 like I said, if you don't have a dose response curve, you have absolutely nothing. And I, it's a very, simple, uh, a very simple example over here. If you have a new substance and you give one gram of it to a big rat and the rat is dead after one hour, well, what did you learn? Well, one gram kills it. Two grams most likely will do this. <laughs> Ten grams definitely will do it. But is it a half a gram that's bad? Is it a tenth of a gram? Is it a milligram? And that is, yeah, I'm going backwards on the dose-response curve. And I'm preaching that for years and years, and I want people to understand that. Don't just listen to somebody on the news and say, this is bad stuff. Tell me why you think it is bad, and I make a decision afterwards. I have a couple of more things over here, but I will shut up. Right. Everybody is sick and tired of my German accent by now. <laughs> Dieter, always, always a pleasure. And uh, Cliff, I know you. I want to make sure you didn't have anything else on your list of, of questions before we... Well, I, I think the only question that I had is whether or not um, I would just like a comment on what you encountered with these wildlife firefighters, and you know, you know whether it's part of um, the the exposure to this particulate. And I'm probably more concerned about particulate than I am in, in gas because I think in disaster restoration situations the gases are gone but the particulate remains behind so I don't know if just the just your opinion. Well that that was work that um, was led by um, uh, Denise Gargan and I, 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 I helped out with it we 
we studied um, two interagency hotshot crews out in uh, in in the West, um, and it was a very very difficult, very very difficult to to study them in the first place. Which is why I think there aren't that many studies done, you know, because you've got to uh, they they move around all over the show when those fires are 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 in, in working. But um, what we did find with them. Uh, is that we did find uh, symptoms, increase in symptoms and decrease in lung function across shift when they, you know, came back at the end of the day. And we did find um, some changes, some changes across season, but there was a tendency for these firefighters to to improve again at at the end of the season. So we almost found more like... um, acute and subacute effects. I think we, uh, you know, would need to study this group a lot longer. One thing uh, about these hotshot crews is they are incredibly fit, and they tend to be young uh, and mostly mostly men, and um, so they um, are very healthy in general. So um, as of yet, I don't think it is known what the long-term health effects are, and as I don't know if you guys know, but the as in 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 the U.S., these um, wildland firefighters don't don't really wear respirators in the same way that the municipal uh, firefighters do. I think a lot of it is that um, they, um, uh, in fact, I, I don't. I think there's still studies going on about whether they they should or shouldn't. So. I, I, I didn't do research on that, but certainly the crew that we we followed did, did not. I didn't know that. No, I, I thought they would wear them. Do you think it's because they, they're concerned about the additional strain of using a, an air purifying type respirator? That, that may be part of it. And and I think another part is that I think they, to some extent they feel they keep, they, they're moving and they move the way they fight the fires. They're not always in the, in, in as much of the exposed the smoke and the exposures that maybe the municipal people are, mm-hmm. and not not the same perhaps chemical exposures that the that the municipal people are. But I, I think it's a pretty it, it's still it, it, it's pretty um, uh, let's say it's up for discussion. I think uh, as to as to whether they should or shouldn't or what could they wear that they, as you say they have to put out a, a huge amount of effort. You know what I mean? Physical effort. Um, and they have to wear, would have to wear something that wouldn't impede that. Well, and, and you know they—they're young, like you said, they're young, they're healthy, they're—they're they're in great shape. And I think a lot of our people doing this disaster restoration are the same way. They—they they tend to be athletic types of people that are able to carry heavy bags and cut out materials and uh, do you know carry different equipment around in buildings and. I think a lot of times they feel like they're invincible, and uh, right. I don't know if that's part of the reasoning or not. But um, I think your research shows that you know eventually uh, there's, nobody's invincible, and, and over time you may regret the fact that you felt you were at one point. Right, and uh, so you know we didn't do as as I say we didn't do long term studies on on those people, and I think. Uh, there may be there may be others that are that are doing that other other centers n- not the uh, uh, some universities that may be trying to study 
study that more. So um, it sounds like Cliff that you have an interest in in in, in disaster work or in 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 thing in firefighters. Is that true? Uh, more so in more so in the disaster side, and you know I've always held a uh, suspicion that doing disaster restoration work expose the workers to hazardous materials and felt that the workers were neither paid for that risk nor were they properly protected and it's just been difficult getting the insurance industry to uh, you know accept my hypothesis right I, I just know you know one always has this just anecdotal stories where you see people who 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 do a lot of this certainly mold restoration work i've seen people without respiratory protection doing the work um, so i think it's a long way to go to standardize the approach you know i'm i'm curious too and i would love to find a way i mean this is a a pet a passion of mine and i know cliff we would love to find a way to actually get some research done and I'm, I'm just throwing this out there for the listeners if anybody has any ideas on how we can cooperate with with people like dr cox ganser and others to do more research and find out what type of I mean, we don't even know what type of exposures these people have on these projects gene it's it's just unbelievable to me that we have no idea what they're exposed to how much they're exposed to. Going back to Dr. Wowsdos' response, it's difficult to do the evaluations because there are no unions for the most part in this in this business to do that. There are a lot of small companies doing this type of work. And most of the focus, quite frankly, has been on mold remediation, and there's been very little on doing cleanup after fires. And we all know that there's significant, you know, problematic materials being cleaned up after these fires and, and they go along as if uh, well nobody told me this is a problem i'll just clean it up i don't necessarily have to wear a respirator or protective clothing or anything yeah, like and that and they're laws to protect people against environmental tobacco smoke yeah <laughs> and, yep. and i think that this is a whole lot worse if I, so if you have any ideas and that's why like i said we like to communicate with people in the research side of things people that are in the field and see if we can't find a way to bring them together but um i have one last question if you don't mind i I just um i i've always had this question on my mind and i saw a note in your one of the papers about rhinitis or rhinosinusitis. Can you right. give me a, a little background on what rhinitis is, um, what research shows us with respect to how people get this or what causes this rhinitis and um, what, uh, what percentage of people in the, in the country have this type of thing, if you know those things? I know some of it. I mean, it's not, it hasn't been my particular research focus, but... I had to do something for another chapter that I that I had uh, written. And for instance, if you just talk about nasal symptoms or or sinus problems, uh, I think you, you'll know from talking to people who who work or or, or live in in water damage and moldy buildings, they'll often complain of of up of upper respiratory symptoms. But rhinitis, and I'll tell you here, it's it's characterized by by nasal stuffiness, sneezing, and a runny or itchy nose. And um, it may be an allergic, you can get allergic and non-allergic 
uh, forms of rhinitis. So, as you know, the word I, when you have itis on the end of anything, it really means inflammation, and rhino is related to the nose. And um, so, an irritant, you can have an irritant uh, uh, response uh, and, and still get those symptoms, and it will still be called rhinitis. Sinusitis um, uh, can be caused by viruses, bacteria, less often by fungi, and irritant substance can also be it. And what that is is inflammation of the uh, sinus, uh, the sinuses, uh, you know, the paranasal sinuses. And they're very similar symptoms to like a cold or rhinitis. And that's why often you'll see it described as rhinosinusitis because the two often seem to go together. So, uh, you know, allergic rhinosinusitis is, uh, is, is very common in the world. And I, I have a reference here which says that uh, estimated prevalences worldwide are between 10 to 50% of population. So that's, that's pretty high. Yes. And I've seen some, something in America where it may be like 20%, 25%, but um, there has been uh, another paper in 2000 saying that the prevalence of work-related rhinitis in people with occupational asthma has been estimated between 76 to 92%. Wow. So what you often see is, is people with asthma will often have rhinosinusitis, and that rhinosinusitis seems, and it's not totally proven yet, but there are some theories to say that it can, in fact, be a risk factor and develop later into asthma. So it's it's um, it's it's pretty it's pretty serious. I think it causes it can cause a lot of um, uh, morbidity. When we use that word, I mean, you, it can be it can take productivity down because people will take a lot of leave around sick leave around it. The medications for it can make you feel really tired and drowsy. So it it, it can be pretty serious. Can you define morbidity for us, just so that I have that on the on the record here for the <laughs> listeners? I think. I think oh, so did you already we, do that? When we say morbidity, we mean almost like the illness effects of things. So, uh, um, so physicians will talk about uh, morbidity versus the mortality in in something. So morbidity just means the health effects because of the illness. It sounds like uh, mort- mortality almost. You know, it's it's got that sound it's exa- to it. Like, but, it's, it's, but mortality is, uh, you know, death. Yep. And yeah. so morbidity is just all the, all the other kinds of the health effect, the health effects of an illness that that can occur and build up, but it's not related to it's not related to death. I I, I really appreciate you joining us this week. I know Cliff does too. I've had a, a wonderful time. I apologize for our our technical difficulties, and I, I sure hope we can bring you back sometime. Uh, <laughs> that would this, be fine. This was a lot of fun, and um, <laughs> I, I just want to say thanks. And before we go, we always like to say, is there anything that, that we didn't ask or anything that you'd like to add? I know we could do this. Like Dieter said, we could go for hours, but uh, if there was anything in particular you'd like to add, we'd like to give you that opportunity. There's one There's one thing I'd like to sort of just emphasize and tell you that we're doing, Um Remember you had asked me earlier, Joe, about the, the work we had done showing that um, the signs of water damage and mold and things like that, how that's related to the health effects yes. rather than the exposures. Well, w- when we found that in our research, we thought, well, is there a way we could 
uh, have like a more practical approach and help help the field and help people out there. That's why I'd just like your readers to know that we're we're very interested in developing this practical tool for people. And when it's when it's ready, it will be, of course, you know, available free, freely available to people. How long do you expect it to take? Um, we've done this pilot phase now for a couple of years, so I would say, uh, depending on funding, we now have to go through a process where it is sort of more formalized that it can be called an IOSH uh, output. So I would say within a year it should be sort of more formalized like that. But on, on a, on a uh, pilot basis, you know, we we could still have people try these beta, you know, these beta meth, the beta versions and things like that if they're interested. Okay. You may be interested in your own work. I would, and most definitely. I'll, I'll definitely be in touch with you about that and, and the other issue we talked about before the show. So, Well, let me, uh, I know you've got a, a, obviously a busy schedule. We appreciate you staying with us. It ran over. We appreciate your, your, your just wonderful um, outlook on things and attitude, even though we had some technical problems, and I just can't thank you enough for joining us. You're welcome, and thanks so much for inviting me. All right. Our pleasure. Well, this is Joe Hughes saying, before we go, uh, thanks to the Z-Man. We, uh, we we worked our way through, but it was, it was a tough one. Uh, thanks to Valerie Bender at the controls. I have to say, it was not Val's fault that we had these technical problems. Uh, we've, uh, we're still working through the Skype issue, but we're, we're almost there, and we'll clean up any uh, little issues during our editing on uh, hopefully maybe tomorrow. We'll see. But uh, I also want to thank Dr. Dietrich Wow, of course, for joining us, as always, on this week's edition of IAQ Radio. And most importantly, you. Um, thanks to all of you out there for hung in there. I, that hung in there, I see quite a few stayed on throughout. And uh, we appreciate you coming back and joining us every week. We're working on another show for next week. So please come back and join us next week for the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.